0: Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. As you're turning there, we remember that Matthew 18 began with the disciples asking the question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Mark 9, and 34 makes it clear that they had actually spent the entire trip to Capernaum discussing which one of them was the greatest. They wanted Jesus to settle this argument, but instead of settling the argument about which one was the greatest, this entire chapter up to this point has been Jesus correcting their arrogance and their spirit of rivalry and their lovelessness toward their fellow little ones. Jesus took a little child up in his lap and he used the child as an object lesson applying that, ob- that object lesson, the little child, in three different ways. First, Jesus used the child as an illustration to correct how the disciples viewed themselves. They're concerned about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus warns them in verse 3, Truly I say unto you, unless you're converted and become like children, you'll not even enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't repent of this haughty arrogance, you're going to miss the kingdom altogether. Harkens your mind back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're displaying the opposite of that. He's telling them, You needn't worry about being the greatest in the kingdom. If you remain like this, you ain't even going to get in. Secondly, Jesus uses the child as an illustration to correct the loveless way that they were treating one another. Each one of the disciples was making the case for why he was the greatest in the kingdom, each asserting his own righteousness over the others. No doubt there were negative comparisons, pointing out the perceived weaknesses and the failures of other disciples in a condemnatory and attacking kind of way. And Jesus warns them. He tells them, whoever receives, that means retains a knowledge of, uh, welcomes, a... Such child, one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes on me to stumble, if you offend them or shock them, cause feelings of disgust or hatred or dislike or contempt in them, it would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung about your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is throwing haymakers here. Their sin is serious. In verse 3, Jesus warned them of the blessings that they had missed if they didn't repent of their haughty spirits. And in verses 7 and 9, He warns them of the severity of the consequences if they keep being loveless toward their brothers and sisters, toward these fellow little ones. He actually warns them in verses 8 and 9 of eternal fiery hell. And He tells them to see to it, that they don't despise, that they don't think little of or look down on or disregard even one of these other little ones. For he says that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of their Father who is in heaven. These other disciples who you were insulting and tearing down to make yourself feel superior to them, they're God's little children who though they're weak and immature, they're believing in Christ. And the Father loves each one of his children dearly. If you look down on, think little of or disregard one of God's children, if you intentionally offend them, insult them, or tear them down instead of making them feel welcome and valued, then you excite the anger and wrath of the Father. And then thirdly, in verses 12-15, through he uses another analogy and relates it back to the child sitting in his lap, that if any man had a hundred sheep and one of them had gone astray, doesn't he leave the ninety and nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that's straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety and nine that haven't gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones perish. If a man would obsess over a lost asset like a sheep or a coin like we see in the twin parable in, verse, in, in, the, in Luke's parallel, what an insult it would be to the father not to seek one of the father's little ones who has gone astray. Jesus is making the point that a calloused indifference to the spiritual health of a professing Christian is, of, is as offensive to the father as it would be to the parents of the toddler of this, of this, in, this, in Jesus' lap if he went missing and the disciples showed no concern. And that brings us to our text for this morning. A text that's ignored completely by most so-called churches and one that's used like a hammer by many that do see its importance but use it wrongly, use it with harshness. It's the famous text on church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact might be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. We're going to be looking this week and next week. This is a two-part series on first, just today, just seeking your brother. And next week, seeking your brother with your brothers and then shunning your so-called brother. Today, though, we begin with just seeking your brother in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. We mustn't miss the context of this passage. Jesus gives these heavy words with this toddler still in his lap. We don't think of this as a toddler in your lap kind of section of Scripture, do we? A visual reminder that unless they see themselves as the lowest of ranks, humbling themselves like little children, that they won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. If you remember that, do you think it will impact your posture as you seek your brother? Of course it will, won't it? This child would have also served as a visible reminder to readily receive all such little ones, being careful not to be a stumbling block to them. A reminder that fiery hell awaits those who despise the father's little ones who always behold the angel's face. If you remember that you do not if you remember that, do you not think it will impact how you speak to your brother when you approach him? Of course it will. And this child would have been a visual reminder of the value that God places on any straying little one. It's not His will that any perishes. If you remember that, do you think it will ensure that you obey this command? That you actually try to go and get them? Of course it will. And we mustn't forget also that this isn't just some man who is sinning or missing the part mark. It says if your what? Brother sins. He is your brother the the word here is a delphos literally one womb he's one womb with you 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 have the same place of origin. This is family language and it imports a note of personal care. It's been used repeatedly throughout this gospel to refer to fellow disciples. Uh, probably the most striking to me is in Matthew 12, 48-50 where it says, Who is my brother? Jesus says. Who is my mother or my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is, my brother and sister and mother. This person who has sinned is your brother. He's one who has shown evidence of regeneration. Is he perfect? No. Are you? No. Of course not. But he is one whose pattern of life is that of a man who does the will of the Father. As such, although he's currently in sin, you are to view him as one of the father's little ones. All those who will enter the kingdom of heaven have been converted and become like little children, low in rank, poor in spirit. So you're not going to him expecting an argument because little ones are likely to hear a concerned brother who believes him to be in sin. We go If we go expecting for a fight, you'll probably find one. But when you go to your brother in a spirit of humility, low in rank, and treating him as another who's low in rank, as little children of the same father who love their father and want to please him, you're likely to be heard. And that's the posture that we come with. If your brother is in sin. If your brother is in sin. So there's a hopeful expectation of being heard. And what are we required to do when we perceive that our brother is in, is in, in sin? Well, the first word here is it says to go. The word here is upago. It means to depart, to to get to moving, to move along. If any man, it it reminds me of the verses right before it, in verse twelve. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Now, there's a brother that's straying from righteousness. And what does Jesus say in the verse before this? The verse right before this. Isn't it the will of your Father who is in heaven that none of these little ones perish? God doesn't want any of them to perish. So you see them straying into sin, and what does He tell you to do? If you see your brother in sin, go. It's important. There's an urgency behind it. You've got to act. God intends to use you as part of this little one's journey to the kingdom, as part of his salvation story. So you, Upago, you go and depart. You get to moving. Who's supposed to go? If your brother sins, you are to go. Not the church leaders. Not the pastor needs to do something about this. Not someone who you think would do a better job than you would do. Not someone who you think has a better relationship with this brother than you have. No, no, no. It is you, the one who noticed the sin, who is to go. Get that straight in your mind. You don't get to put this off on somebody else and wish somebody else will do it. You go. Another thing that must be pointed out about this, this word here, this go word, is it's an imperative. It means it's a, it's a command. The name of this sermon is From Seeking to Shunning What is Required in Church Discipline. Jesus is ordering you to go to your brother. In verses 3 through 14, there were only three imperatives in the 12 verses, three commands in all those verses. But in these three short verses, there's five imperatives. The foundation has been laid to make sure you do this right, but it was all building to this section. Everything you're supposed to do, because of everything we've heard in the last three sermons, is related to these three verses on going to restore your straying brother, and it's not optional. It's a command. It is an imperative. It must take place. If you find yourself compassionately concerned about your brother's sin, or as often the case, stewing over it. Let's be honest. Sometimes you're not compassionately concerned. You're stewing over it. Or, God forbid, even worse, you're talking with other people who have nothing to do with the sin, might not even know about it, and instead of talking to them about it, you're talking to... instead of talking to the sinner about it, you're talking to others about it. Don't be a hypocrite. Yes, he is in sin, but so are you if you refuse to go to him. We have to remember our catechism question. What is sin? Any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. We tend to be very upset over transgressions of the law of God. We take it very seriously when someone does something that we think God forbids, but we often excuse ourselves for for not doing things that Christ clearly commands us to do. He commands you to go to your brother that you've got concern about. You not doing so is just as much a sin as what he's doing. If you really care about sin that much, don't be a hypocrite. Deal with your own so you can help him deal with his. If the sin you perceive in him bothers you so much, then you need to make absolutely certain that you don't sin by failing to go to your brother. But you don't just go. It's not just pursue. It's also you've got to prepare. What's the next words here? It's go and show him his fault. Notice that this is show him his fault and not tell him his fault. There's a difference. This word for show... It means to convict or to rebuke, to expose, to make ashamed. It goes deeper though. To cross-examine, to put to proof, to test, and to lay bare. It implies bringing to light or exposing a sinful pattern, a secret sin, or perhaps a blind spot or an area of spiritual neglect. Many times your brother that's in sin that you perceive, he doesn't recognize it as sin. That's why he's doing it. You know your brothers and sisters, these fellow little ones, they're not rebels. They have the hearts of little children who want to obey. They just might not see clearly in some areas that you see more clearly than they do. And what are we to do as the church? Grow together in righteousness. Aid one another in sanctification. But if it's a blind spot, he might not disagree with you just because you say it's sinful. Right? Right? Just because you say it's sinful, he might disagree. It's even possible that you're wrong. How do you prepare to show him his fault? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to repent yourself. You say, wait, I know what you're thinking. Why do I need to repent in order to show my brother that he's in sin? Well, the main reason is because Jesus said so. Look back with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. You know that famous text that everybody uses to say you shouldn't do exactly what I'm telling you. You have to do the, the one of the three Bible verses that most Americans know. Judge not that you be not judged. You know that one? Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured into you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and not notice the log or the beam that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, a log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, what's he tell you to do? First, take the log out of your own eye. Why? So that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice that the issue is one of the eyes. This is pivotal. You cannot show them their fault if you cannot rightly see their fault. And he says you have to get the log out of your own eye before you can see clearly to get the speck out of his. You must repent before you go. Say, repent of what? All sin is an eye problem. Did you know that? Everything you do is because of the eye. What do you mean by that? Well, you're in Matthew 7. Turn back to Matthew six, twenty-two through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Whatever most catches your eye is what causes your actions. You do because what you most want is what you go after. That's it. You go after what you want and it takes a singleness of focus. If your eye is clear, then the whole body goes hard after that object. If it's like one focus, your one thing matters. You're not an idolater. You're going hard after the kingdom. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the only thing that matters. But if it's evil, the word here means duplicitous, uh, torn. It's it's not clear. It's lacking focus. It's got the idea of double vision. If your eye has double vision, if you're wanting to seek uh, gain the kingdom of heaven while at the same time going after the fleeting pleasures of this world, then your decisions will become inconsistent. You'll be unsure of what to do when you're tempted. If your brother is in sin then their eye is on the wrong treasure. It's not the thing they're doing. It's the thing they want most that's the problem. The eye is the problem. The action is just the fruit of that problem. And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, a log is clogging your vision until you make sure my motives for going to this brother is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and not because they're getting on my nerves, not because I'm fed up with them, not because it would make my life more convenient if they would straighten up until you've got the log out of your eye until you have an eternal perspective yourself, you're not ready to see their fault because your eye's not on the right target yourself repentance is essential, you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye Before we suggest a lack of eternal perspective, a divided heart, or a double eye in our brother, we must make sure that a glaringly obvious earthly motive is not sticking out like a log from our own eye. Most times this manifests itself in the, you're getting on my nerves, or I don't like the stuff that you do kind of confrontation. We just want simple behavior modification. That's all we're caring about. It's like spanking your children because you're embarrassed by them or because they're distracting you when you're trying to read or watch television instead of because you're trying to shepherd their hearts. We only want their actions not to affect our agenda. Such shallow discipline is unbecoming of a Christian parent and such hypocritical speck removal is unbecoming of a church member. We must be aware of our own need, of our own weakness, of our own carnal motives. Even having searched our heart for carnal motives in desiring to to correct our brother, repentance is essential first. Get your heart right. Yeah, you've got to go, but get your heart right or you'll never be able to show them their fault. Are we confident we are motivated by love and concern for them? And once we've repented ourselves, we also must research. Repentance and research. Say, what do you mean by research? Well, you've got to go and show them their fault. Where are you going to show it from? You're going to show it from the authority that we have. You're going to show it from this book. From the scriptures. You have to search the scriptures. If you want to convict, if you want to rebuke, if you want to expose, to make ashamed, to cross-examine, to put to proof, to test, to refute, to detect, to lay bare, you have to anticipate their disagreements. They're likely to say this. Maybe they're doing this because of this, this, and this. They might be looking to this and misinterpreting this scripture. You've got to anticipate the disagreements and have answers so that you can refute their objections. You need to understand not just the actions, but the heart issues involved. You know what that's going to take? It's going to take prayer, too. It's going to take time before the face of God to be able to do this. You've got to be able to communicate it in such a way that the seriousness and the gravity of the sin brings conviction and lays your brother bare, preparing him for repentance. Going to your brother to show him his sin requires hard work. But once again, it's not optional. Show him his fault is the second imperative. It's the second command. You have to go and you have to show him the fault. But in order to show the fault, you've got to do the hard work yourself, repent yourself, and you've got to do this research. Say, that sounds like a lot of hard work. Yeah, work's good for you. Did you know that? You'll grow because you do this kind of work. And you'll be more than just a distant, calloused, lukewarm Christian who's not good for anything. You'll grow yourself and help your brother grow. It's not a suggestion here. It's a command. We must go and we must get face to face with our brother. We mustn't beat around the bush, skirt the issue, or be too vague for him to even know that you thought he was wrong about something and is being confronted. You've got to be direct enough to where they actually know a conversation that matters is taking place. The brother is to be shown his sin in such a way that he cannot escape recognizing it for what it is. Repentance is the goal. And thirdly, when seeking our brother, we must be careful to protect his privacy. We've got to pursue, we've got to prepare, and we've got to protect their privacy. Notice that. We go and show him his fault. Where? In private. You're to show your brother his fault. Literally, it says, the Greek here is between you and him alone. Remember the context. The disciples have just been arguing in a group setting over which one of them is the greatest. Almost certainly pointing out the perceived weaknesses and failures of the other disciples in this attacking kind of way, out in front of everybody, belittling and shaming fellow Christians over their weaknesses and their perceived shortcomings. Jesus had a a way of confronting sin directly and undeniably, didn't he? They couldn't have helped but feel the weight of their guilt. It must be our desire to protect not solely the reputation of our brothers, of the father's little ones. Remember who this is. The, the kid's still sitting in his lap. They're still thinking this is one of the father's little ones. You can't sully the reputation of your brother and one of the father's little ones. Have you ever had someone shine a light on the shortcomings of one of your children publicly? Have you ever had that happen? I have. Any other parent? Nobody else. Well, my kids are worse then. Straighten up, kids. No. Or gossip about your kids and it gets back to you. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody said so-and-so about your kid. I guarantee some mommy in here, oh no, you didn't. Somebody. Didn't like it, did you? God doesn't like it either. Sin of whatever form must be confronted. But it must be confronted sensitively. And with discretion. Discretion. No one else needs to hear about the sin that you see in your brother before you've talked to him about it in private. Nobody else needs to hear about it. This wasn't a new thing either. It goes all the way back. Jesus, it's like Jesus believed the Bible. Because Leviticus 19, 16-17, Jesus is clearly pulling off of this. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him go around slandering him and become a sinner yourself when your brother's in sin go to, go to him and help him with his sin but you're just bringing sin on yourself when you talk to other people about his sin and become the slanderer Jesus hated that he warns us against it so we pursue and we prepare and we protect the privacy of our brothers these fellow little ones Because we prize our brother. And we're going because we prize our brother. Notice the last part. If he listens to you, what have you done? You've won. What's the prize at the end? You've won your brother. This Akuo, if he listens, the word is Akuo. If he hears, if he pays attention, if he receives, if he understands, if he obeys. If your brother hears you out, then mission accomplished. You've won your brother, and that was your goal. The goal of discipline is not to throw people out of the church, but to bring the sinning brother back into obedience. Your brother himself is the prize at the end of all this difficult preparation. Not being right... The, goal, the, the prize is not that you get to be right it's not that you get to prove your point it's not that you get to show that you are clearly superior to him and that you're the greatest in the kingdom. It's not the, goal, the prize is not curbing the behavior that gets on your nerves. The, the prize at the end is your brother and he is worth the effort he's one of the father's little ones. The word for one here is it means it refers to financial gain or profit. Here it refers to the gaining back of something of value that's lost. And guys, I'm going to tell you something about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They are valuable to the church. You know, you're not the only one that has gifts that are valuable to the church. That every single person that God saves, He gives the Holy Spirit. And with the gift of the Holy Spirit comes the gifts of the Spirit. And they've got them. they need to be cultivated and used. And when we lose one of these little ones, their effectiveness or or their presence, God forbid, that they actually leave the church altogether, when we lose that, we're losing something of infinite value to the church. When a believer is distant, disconnected, and uninvolved in the church due to sin, a valuable treasure is lost. We shouldn't be content until they're restored. They're too valuable. This is MacArthur. When a church member falls into sin, the fellowship as a whole, and each of the other members individually suffers loss. Because no individual believer in the body is reproducible. Each believer is a unique individual and is uniquely gifted. People go to great lengths to regain material wealth when it's lost. To how much greater lengths should Christians go to regain a spiritual treasure more valuable than any earthly possession? The obvious answer is, if we go after a sheep, if we had 99 sheep and we lost one, man, we'd want to recover that lost value. How much more important is it to recover the lost value of one of God's little ones? We've got to go get them. We've got to remember that there are a variety of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. But the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." You go forward a few verses to verse 18. "...and God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired." The reason that member is in our church, every single one of you, if you're on our roll, it's because God placed each one in here as He desired. God placed them here, do you think He wants them here? And He wants them cared for and taken care of? Absolutely. Verses 24-26, through same chapter. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lack, so that there is no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That should be our attitude. We should treasure one another and see the value of each of our one another's in this church body. If you don't know the members in the church, then you need to get to work getting to know your brothers and sisters. You're in covenant with them. You might say, well, I don't think so-and-so is particularly valuable to the church at all. Well, they are absolutely valuable to God. Do you know that? Admittedly, some people are more valuable to the health and function of the church than others. Right? Every man is given a measure of faith. Some more, some less. Men are born with different capacities, different talents, different skills and abilities, different intellects. We see in the parable of the talents that God gives five talents to one man, two to another, and only one to another. To deny this clearly observable fact is as intellectually dishonest as it is scripturally indefensible. But not all... uh, children provide the same tangible benefit to a family either. Some children are born severely handicapped, whether mentally or physically. But ask any parent of any such child if they love that child any less than their more productive children, the ones that are really sharp and the ones that are really healthy, if they love the less productive children less, what are you going to find? Their affection for their child is not based on their potential or their utility. They simply love their child because it's their child. Remember how Jesus just taught in the parable of the lost sheep that the value of one sheep is not diminished because there are many. God highly values every single one of His children and it's not His will that even one of them would perish. Verse 14, And you were used to bring one back. The stakes are really high here too. What does James say about this? In James 5, 19-20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Do you love your brothers and sisters? How can you say you do if you don't confront them? If you don't pursue them, if you don't prepare, if you don't protect their privacy and you don't prize them and their value of their soul and their contribution to the church body, your statement of your love for them is empty platitudes and nothing more. Bible tells us to love, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. We finished the verse, but I want to make some bonus observations, if you will. Uh, I don't want to jump into the what to do if he doesn't listen. I want that to stand alone next week of pursuing your brother with your brothers and then shunning your so-called brother. There's so much meat there. I don't want to start into it today and it will wear you out. But I do want to make a few of these bonus observations. One is church retention versus church growth. It seems that most churches have more concern for reaching people who have never attended than they do for keeping and discipling the people that God has already brought to them. The, the people into whom they've already invested. The people who have shown some belief and growth in the faith. Yes, evangelism matters. But if you evangelize and you never disciple, you are accomplishing very little, if anything, for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. It is this transformed church that serves as a city on the hill. The church militant that is radically different than the world that will win the world and the culture. And that requires that we seek these brothers who are blinded in their sin. Our goal is those that have professed faith to let them come to maturity in the faith and reflect the glory of Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ and then the world will see that image and they'll be changed by it. The problem is we get people in the doors, we never disciple them and they look just about indistinguishable from the rest of the world. And we want to get more people in here in the church to look exactly like the rest of the world. What good does it do? You say, well, at least they're saved. Well, are they? You know, it gets pretty muddy about what saved looks like when they don't even know the gospel. Your average, your average church member today doesn't understand. They couldn't even articulate two or three of the Ten Commandments or, or the, uh, understand that Jesus and the Trinity or the, that Jesus is the only way to God or that there's absolute truth. They would stump their toe on every one of those things. Why? Because they've got the bare essential amount of truth to get them into a social club to look like the rest of the world. They're never disciples. They don't know what they're supposed to believe and they certainly don't know how they're supposed to live. These people with whom you are in covenant, these people, are people who have promised to receive instruction from you. You have recourse with these people, a place of appeal within the community of faith. These are the people for whom you will give an account to God. You might say, well, I don't even like most of these people. Repent! Repent! Matthew 18.10, See to it that you don't despise, think little of, look down on, or disregard one of these little ones. You're not allowed to not like even one of these people. So if you don't like most of them, repent. Thanks for your confession. Repentance is next. For I say to you, their angels in heaven continually see the face of the Father who is in heaven. How dare we ignore them, ignore their sin struggles, and even ignore it when they are clearly drifting away. But such people often are all about evangelism. Go therefore into all nations and make... Go therefore into all the world to make disciples of all the nations. Great commission is about disciple making. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do what? Observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So if you see them in sin and they're not walking according to what Christ has commanded, you know what your job is, your duty, the... the commission you have, this imperative once again is to go to them and teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. The average professing believer is a train wreck theologically and is so immersed in culture that they would find an actual faithful Christian lifestyle extremely weird at best and offensive at worst. And many spend more time thinking about how to debate atheists and cult members than they do about Ephesians 4, 11-16. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 11-16. talks about the purpose of the gifts that God gives to His church. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. What's the purpose of the gifts? The building up of the body of Christ. Until when? Until we attain the unity of the faith. Does it matter if we all believe the same things? Yep. That we attain the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, here's the outcome that we're looking for. That we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If we focus on getting unified and understanding doctrine rightly and looking like Jesus, it will cause the growth of the body because the world will see the glory of God displayed in His church and people will be one. But if we look like the world, but man, we sure can debate an atheist. We're not going to make any impact. Because we're not looking like Christ. We just flip a button. Man, we're conformed to the world, but we've got a button we can flip to get us in evangelism mode to where we can go argue with somebody intellectually and persuade them that we're right. And then they believe, oh yeah, the Jesus thing's right, but they have no idea how to live and we never worry about that. Because if they sin, we ignore it. That's the state of the church. Jesus wasn't that way. Turn with me also to John 17. We look at Jesus' high priestly prayer and we, say, we see this same idea in John 17 starting at verse 7. Speaking of his disciples, he says, Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. They know that what Jesus has taught is from the Father. These people that know that. Okay? For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them, and they received them. And they understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou did send me. I ask on their behalf. Where's, where's Jesus' concern? I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of these that thou, that thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And you say, well, what about winning the world? Go over to verse 19. He he addresses that. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves might also be sanctified in truth. Jesus consecrated his entire life to the purpose of seeing to it that the people that believed would become consecrated themselves. They would also be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also might be in us, so that the world might believe that thou didst send me. What's what's the goal here? That... They might be one. The unity of the church, everybody being one and unified in doctrine and understanding how to live in line with what the Scriptures actually teach, that's what will persuade the world to believe that God sent Christ. But we don't get in each other's business at all. Or you just do your thing and and I'll do mine. You believe your thing and I'll believe mine. The unity of the church dealing with sin when it rears its head, realizing that not everyone that names the name of Christ is actually a Christian and that sometimes when you go to them and they will resist, that it's actually exposing that they aren't even in Christ yet. And The best thing we can do for them, for their soul, is to let them know that and pray that God brings them back, which we'll get into next week. Ignoring this is like a family refusing to parent their five disobedient, unruly children but desperately trying to have more kids. Man, my kids are a train wreck. I sure do need to have a bunch more. Same thing. If we're not pursuing and discipling those that God has already given us and brought to us, then why in the world do we want to bring more condemnation on ourselves by evangelizing more people that we're not going to disciple? Say, well, we need to want to evangelize more people. Yeah, we need to want to have more kids too, but we've got to have the ones we do have in order. And if you're prioritizing having more babies and not raising them in the fear and the admission of the Lord, you've got something twisted. Same thing in the church. Discipleship should consume us. Pouring into one another should consume us and we'll grow into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next and the world will see. And they'll be won by the fact that we are completely different because our ways are in line with the teachings of Scripture. And it'll shine like a city on a hill. Lastly, I want to look at some reasons that people refuse to seek a sinning brother. I hope some of these hit you. And I hope you've got your steel-toed boots on. Or No, I actually hope you left them at home. I hope to get your toenails bleeding on these. Sometimes it's self-righteous contempt. Looking down their noses at the less mature, less righteous brother who they doubt is a brother at all. And of course, they don't even care enough to invest in them to find out. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brethren, even if one is caught in any trespass, if, if anyone is caught, this is in the context of the church, in any trespass, you say any trespass? Yeah even the most grievous of sins you 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 don't say wow those people that person's disgusting there's no we don't allow for shock factor to keep us from still going after them if they're caught in any trespass what does he say you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one of you looking to yourself that you will not also be tempted we this man who has this self-righteous contempt for other believers, this disdain for other professing believers who are just not a, not holy enough for his own standard, not as sanctified as he thinks they should be, he doesn't seem to be one who has humbled himself as a little child, does he? And except you become converted, become like one of these little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. He might be shocked when he's the one that fails to enter instead of the one that he thinks is too sinful. Not only is it self-righteous contempt sometimes, but it can be calloused indifference. There's no contempt here. The person doesn't hate you, he just doesn't care about you. They go through their life barely noticing anything outside their own immediate concerns and the things that will profit them. Again, they don't realize it, but they're despising, they're thinking little of, looking down on or disregarding other of God's little ones, often becoming inadvertent stumbling blocks. You have no reason to believe that you've passed from death into life. If you have no love for the brethren, if you don't care, if you despise them, it's better than a millstone be hanged about your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus already told us, you're actually in danger of eternal hellfire. That won't work. False humility. This one gets us a lot. The, the, you know the person that's just too humble for his own good? You know, too humble. I just couldn't go talk to them about their sin because I know myself. I'm just so sinful and wretched. I don't know why that person always sounds like that. I don't know why. That's how they sound. With this one, they get to sound super humble and pious. But it's actually a disguise for laziness and indulgence. If you're talking about regular weaknesses and shortcomings then join the club. We all will have those until Jesus comes. But if you're talking about willingly continuing in some sinful pattern that you know is sin but you intend to do it anyway, then your soul's in danger. If you're sinning on purpose all the time and you just refuse to repent you need to to get that beam out of your own eye for your own soul's sake. And then also so you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brothers. Which you still have an imperative command telling you you have to do that. You're just so humble, you don't even have to obey Jesus, I guess. Right? You desperately need to get that beam out of your eye. The brother in sin needs to be called to repentance for some willful sin or blind spot. Not because he was guilty of some shortcoming. So you're going to him. Yeah, you both have shortcomings, but he has a blind spot that he needs to be talked to about and you must go to him after you've done your own heart work. It's not optional. And you'll almost always find that this individual puts almost zero time into Bible study, the false humility guy. You know, I'm just so sinful and wretched, I can't go to him. That's usually the person that studies the Bible nil. They don't know the Bible. They don't know what the Bible says about much at all. And even if they have a vague biblical morality, they wouldn't have any idea where to go in the Scriptures to show this other brother their fault. So because they're too lazy to do the work... Because they don't want to repent themselves and then do the hard work of actually making a case to go to their brother. They use the whole, I'm just so sinful, I just can't go thing as an excuse to get out of having to. It's their job to convict, rebuke, to cross-examine, to put to proof, to test, to lay bare. MacArthur, again, the spiritual Christian neither condemns nor justifies a sinning brother. His concern is for the holiness and blessing of the offending brother, the purity and integrity of the church, and the honor and the glory of God. And one last reason. I call it, Michael and I talked about this last night, we called it prideful preservation. So, say, what do you mean by that? This person refuses to confront a sinning brother because he doesn't want to deal with a potential relational collateral. In other words, they're my friend and they might get mad at me and I really like the friendship. You know that one? Man, if I talk to him and he doesn't receive it well, it could cause awkwardness in my relationship. He sees his brother in sin, he's concerned, but he enjoys the friendship and fears using the relationship more than he cares about his brother's soul. First of all, that's faithless. You don't believe that God will use his truth to sanctify his child? That's what truth does. If you believe he's one of these little ones, then he'll receive truth. He knows he's of low rank and needs to grow. Go in the right spirit, expectantly. But also, if you, it's, it's unloving. Is it? Do you think this person's not a Christian, but you're willing to just let him live his entire life deceiving himself, only to be dis, de, surprised on the day of judgment? When many will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name cast out devils and in your name perform many great and wonderful works? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. You depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In the eyes of much of the world and even in the eyes of many immature believers, confronting sin is unloving. Tolerating and even celebrating a person's sin is what love does in our culture today, isn't it? But discipline, given in the right way, expresses the deepest kind of love. Love that refuses to do nothing to rescue a brother from unrepentant sin and its consequences. Love that winks at sin or is more concerned for a superficial calm in the church than it is for spiritual purity is not God's kind of love. Love that tolerates sin is not love at all, but worldly, selfish sentimentality. To preach love, this is MacArthur, apart from God's holiness, is to teach something other than God's love. No church that tolerates known sin in its membership will have spiritual growth or effective evangelism. In spite of that truth, however, such tolerance is standard in the church today at all levels. Next week we're going to be returning to this discipline text and see what we're required to do if the brother won't hear us. If we've done this, if we've pursued, if we've prepared ourselves well, if we've um, uh, protected their privacy, and if we've prized their souls and we go in that spirit and they still won't hear us, we're going to look at what it looks like to seek your brother with your brothers and then ultimately shunning your so-called brother. But I want to ask you this. Have you come short in this first requirement? Just seeking your brother. Has that been something that you've done diligently and done well? Have you prepared yourself and kept your heart right, kept your eye pure so that you could see your own sin, understand your own heart and also understand the heart of your brother? And when you see their sin, do you care enough? Have you cared enough to go to them, to talk to them? Or have you failed? Guess what? I've done well sometimes, but I've failed a whole lot. So many times I've came short. So what are sinners like you and me to do? Well, there's this one guy. There's this one guy. And he spent his entire life pursuing sinners. That's all he did. From heaven he came and sought his bride. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He never sinned, never failed, not one time. He always did the will of the Father. And He always loved those that the Father had given Him. Even to the point that when people hated Him, He died on the cross, though He was completely innocent. And He didn't pay for His own sins. He gave His life, why? To pay for mine and your shortcomings. That's the great hope we have in the gospel. We hear a hard sermon like this. And we feel the guilt, and we feel the weight, we feel the gravity. I'm guilty! Oh, but thou wast slain. You died to pay my penalty, and that's my only hope. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. God desires compassion and not sacrifice, for he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I call you this morning once again back to the cross. It's where we always end up. We always end up back at the table. Our hope is in our performance. Do we want to perform? Yes, I do. How many of you want to be righteous? Yeah! I want to obey. And when we come to this table, we're recommitting to grow in our obedience to Christ. To recommit, I want to obey all the things I see. I don't want to have any willful sin. And I want to help my brothers and sisters like I'm supposed to. To be a means of grace in their lives. We're recommitting to that. But we're never trusting in some attainment of righteousness. We're trusting in the completed work of Christ. He died for us. And we're going to help point people back to that in the church body as well. And we're going to forgive our erring brothers and sisters just like we ourselves have also been forgiven when they don't perform up to... Christ's standard. We're not going to say, oh, how dare you? What a terrible person. We're going to remember we haven't either. And we're going to forgive and we're going to extend grace and we're going to be committed to growing and encountering the darkness by being a holy people that stand up for truth. That show the people their transgressions, yes, but also give them the hope that is in Christ Jesus. An enduring hope that we have. At Fellowship, we extend the table every week to members who are uh, to people who are members in good standing here at Maynardville Fellowship or are members of another church and in regular attendance, not under formal discipline, with a recommendation from at least one of our members that they're walking with the Lord. And say, why do you do it that way? Because this table matters. We're saying you're a partaker of the body and blood of Christ. We're putting our seal of approval. We're, we're saying yes, we see signs that you're a partaker of the eternal covenant. Will we do that perfectly? We're supposed to try. It's a lot of what these texts are about that we're going to be looking at this week and next week. And it says that if any so-called brother, be an idolater or a drunkard or a railer, gives a whole list of sins not to even eat with such a person. We have to know you at least a little bit to be able to do that. So that's where we've landed. It's called close communion. It's not closed for only our members, but it's close. We don't want that to be an offense, but we want you to understand that we do take Jesus' body very seriously. Uh, hopefully next time you visit we can have gotten to know you a little bit better and we can celebrate the table if you're a visitor and if you're a visitor that doesn't have a home church we don't want you to have the symbol without the reality you need to join a church somewhere church matters Jesus came to save his bride local churches matter being in submission and under the discipline and authority of a local church with real people matters. So we want to invite you into that and get you to join with us or encourage you to join somewhere else if you don't have that because it matters and it matters eternally. Prepare your hearts as we come to worship. Have a table.